Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you all doing? Are you okay? Well, this is the first one back from my holiday. It wasn't a great holiday, guys. There's so much to tell. But anyway, we'll focus on the books, I think, this week. So before I went, I had 25 books to take with me, plus my Kindle for emergencies and, of course, my audio books. And I was very good. I whittled it down to 22 books. Well, well, I suppose, first of all, I should explain. So we've got extra luggage allowance and normally it's fine to take all the books. I don't know what's happening. I guess the kids are growing up, so they need more stuff. But I bought this new thing that you it's like a travel scales that you put loop around your luggage and lift it up and it tells you the weight well it's fair to say every suitcase exceeded the luggage allowance so having to take stuff out so I was taking out shoes I was taking out clothes and I thought oh my goodness I've got to take out all my books it's a very serious moment so every book had to come out of the luggage and I thought what what am I going to do? So my husband very kindly had three books in his hand luggage and I had, was it, I think I had 19 books in my hand luggage. I had my son's medication, my HRT and my books. And that was it. I had to borrow my son's school bag because I needed such a big bag for my hand luggage. And let's guess whose bag got stopped at security and whose bag had to be gone through by security people with gloves on. (laughs) And when she opened the bag, I started talking and she said, she was quite a serious person, she said, you don't have to talk, you know. And I'm sorry, I'll stop talking. And then as she lifted out one book and then another book and then another book, she said... Why have you got... She said, I've never seen so many books. Anyway, we ended up having a lovely chat. She likes crime books as well. That's her favourite thing. Probably that figure's given given her job. Turned out it wasn't the books that had set off all the alarms. It was my son has to have these cold eye masks that we keep in the fridge. And those had triggered the alarm. Who knew? But anyway, so yes, she thought I was completely mad. 
I how I didn't break my back carrying those books, but I was determined I was going to. How many books did I read on holiday? I listened to one audio book. I didn't listen to that many because the place was so bad. I mean, the hotel was perfectly fine, but the location was so bad that I couldn't go out running. It just didn't feel safe. And there was no way I was going on a treadmill on holiday. So anyway, I read one book. And then I read one book. Come on, Philip. I listened to one book, one audio book, and I read 18 books, which I think is not bad over two weeks. So I did. So it validated the need to take those books. And I left three books for the people in the hotel because they, I thought they weren't books that I was really going to read. I took them on holiday as sort of light holiday reading and I never felt in the mood for that. So I left those there and bought another one back. So I've got lots of books to talk to you about, but I'm going to keep it to the normal five books a week, five books every Monday, and we'll be moving to two books on a Friday soon. I'm confused. I don't know what's going on. I'm back from holiday. At least I can speak. But let me tell you what books we've got today. We've got some crackers. First of all, we've got Kill For Me, Kill For You by Steve Kavanagh. And Steve is very kindly coming on the podcast. That's exciting. Then we've got The Dive by Sarah Oakes. Sarah's coming on to talk to us all about that fab book. And then the three books I'm going to tell you about from the holiday are Foster by Claire Keegan. You're going to want to get that book. The Ashes of London by Andrew Taylor. You're going to want to get that book. And A Court of Thorns and Roses by Sarah J. Maas. You're going to want to get that book as well. They're all very different. So I imagine when you're listening to this, not only are you raising your eyes to the ceiling thinking, how can she take 22 books on holiday and read 18? But also, <laughs> do you know what the thing I discovered on holiday? An ice latte with Baileys in is the stuff of legends and does make the reading experience even better. Anyway, let's get back to the book. So let's get started on the first book. And that is Kill For Me, Kill For You by Steve Kavanagh. This is a standalone. We love Steve Kavanagh's books. We love Steve's standalone. We love Eddie's series. And this is a standalone. Let me read the blurb for you on this one. One dark evening in New York City, two strangers meet by chance. Over drinks, Amanda and Wendy realise they have so much in common. They both feel alone, they both drink alone, and they both desperately want revenge against the two men who destroyed their families. Together, they have the perfect plan. If you kill for me, I'll kill for you. Oh, such a good book. Well, you know me, I love all Steve's books. I'm trying not to fangirl too much. Let's just go and talk to Steve now. Well, it is my huge pleasure to welcome back to the podcast Steve Kavanagh, whose latest truly tremendous book is called Kill For Me, Kill For You. Steve, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me back on, Philippa. It's always a great pleasure to do your show. Oh, thank you. Well, I think you were the first ever author I ever talked to because I remember William Shaw during the initial sort of COVID lockdown time started doing an online book thing. It was live on Facebook, I think it was. And he was talking to me and he said, well, you know, come on with an author. If you could say which author would you have on? I said, oh, Steve Kavanagh. And and here we are years later. Oh, 
well, that's lovely. That's lovely. I didn't know I was the the first the first writer you'd spoken to. Yeah, I remember. I I didn't sleep the night before, and yeah, I was really nervous. So we we've come a long way. But thanks for all the support you give the podcast. Not at all. Well. My pleasure. But let's talk about this brilliant book. Well, let's start with you reading us first few sentences if you don't mind when you're ready sure this is a, a standalone book it's called kill for me kill for you and i'll just read a wee bit from chapter one amanda white lifted the lid from the electric baby bottle sterilizer and stared inside at the 22 caliber revolver it looked like the gun was sweating its steel frame and barrel beaded with balls of hot condensation the steam rising gently from the base. Turning away, she found her soft leather gloves, put them on and carefully lifted the weapon clear. The gun had to be cleaned today. No fingerprints, no traces of her DNA. Last night, she had the idea of using the sterilizer to remove any prior trace of her from the weapon. It seemed fitting somehow that one of Jess's things should have a part in this. She was surprised that the sterilizer still worked, it hadn't been used since Jess's first birthday when she'd switched her on to sippy cups. She and her husband, Louis, had decided to keep the sterilizer, though, in case Jess ever had a baby brother or sister down the line. None of that could happen, though. Mm, absolutely brilliant. I just have to repeat the fir- the very first sentence because when I read it, I was I just thought it was the most astonishing First sentence, Amanda White lifted the lid from the electric baby bottle sterilizer and stared inside at the 22 caliber revolver. I mean, Steve, that is that is the first sentence of legends. If I had a gold award, I'd be giving you the gold award for that. Oh, well, thank you very much. I, I do spend a bit of time on my first sentences because I'd read a thing by Stephen King. And King is obviously a, a legend, but hugely prolific. But as well, he can, you know, write a book in a few months and it's a tome and a masterpiece. But he says he spends and can spend sometimes, you know, like six weeks on a first line because it's that important. And another writer I admire, Martin Amos, always talks about treating the reader as a guest and you're the host as the writer. So when you meet them, you want them to feel comfortable and welcomed and uh, and brought in. So I do spend a bit of a bit of time thinking about that. And that 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 can image kind of encapsulates the book. None of the people in this novel have any fantastic great skills. I wanted to write about what happens when something terrible occurs to an ordinary person. Uh, and that that seemed like a very strong image to kick off the book. Absolutely. And yeah, could you tell us a little bit more about this glorious story? Oh, thank you. Yes, this is kind of my little love letter to Alfred Hitchcock and Patricia Highsmith. I love Hitchcock's films. I think he's just an incredible storyteller. And he adapted Highsmith's Strangers on a Train, which has a great plot. It's about what two people meet purely by chance and they just so happen to want to kill someone. Uh, but they can't because if they if they kill this person, they would be the first the first one that the police would arrest. So they get the idea. Well, we we have no connection. No one knows we've met. What if I kill the person you want dead, and you kill the person I want dead, and I have an alibi when the murder occurs? That would be amazing if we do that. And it's almost the perfect murder plot. But of course, nothing ever goes according to plan. So I wanted to do something with that. Highsmith in her book on suspense writing 
says she was never entirely happy with Strangers on a Train as a novel. Uh, and certainly if you look at the talent of Mr. Ripley, she goes up several levels when she's writing that book and it's much more psychologically complex. So I wanted to bring as much psychological complexity and realism as I could to this story of two strangers. And what would it, what would it take for an ordinary person to want to go down that road? So that, that's the sort of the origin for this book. It's about two people and two women this time instead of two men who meet by chance in New York City in one night and they each have someone that they want dead for very good reason and they decide to swap murders. It was a, a an idea and I talked about it with my wife Tracy and we sort of discussed this and then she had the idea of another Hitchcock story which I can't talk about because it gives stuff away but it's the we're, we're taking the very basic premise of that story as well and doing something very different with it. And this book sort of slams those two together. Um, but both stories talk about revenge and what happens when people have cannot get any justice and have to take matters into their own hands. And what is the effect of that? And is that right? And that's a sort of a little moral question that runs through the book as well. And the storylines are brilliant, but how did you manage writing them? Did you have lots of charts on, on your wall and pieces of string going from one to the other? <laughs> No, no, I don't. I, I, I have notebooks, which I use. I like using fountain pens and notebooks to sketch out ideas and things like that. And Because I, I think it's a different part of your brain that switches on when you're writing by hand. So they help me quite a bit. So, yeah, I, I do that. But the story itself, there is a Amanda who is, her, her daughter has been murdered. The police know who did it, and but they can't prove it. So she is going to try and take matters into her own hands. Uh, the other person then is Wendy, who she meets in a support group for, for bereaved parents. And she's in a very similar situation. The other main storyline is a, a, a lady called Ruth, who is fairly newly married and well-to-do real estate agent in New York. And one night something terrible happens to her which I, I won't go into. And the character who ties these sort of threads, these narratives together, is Detective Farrow, who is uh, in the New York police. He's, he's a, He was a lot of fun to write. I've been thinking about writing a detective for a long time. He's nicknamed St. Jude in the department because St. Jude is the patron saint of hopeless cases. And he takes on cases that no one else wants and closes them. And he has a bad back, uh, at the time I was writing this book, I also had a bad oh, no. back, so I gave him all my pain. Thankfully, my back's fine now. But he, he can take medication to, to ease the pain. But when he does that, it dulls his wits, it dulls his mind. So he doesn't take it. So he, he kind of suffers in pain for these victims. He literally car carries their cases on his back. So he was a, a fascinating character, and he's investigating what happened with, with Amanda's daughter and also what happens with Ruth. And irrespective of what happens to those characters in the book, did any of them stay with you after you'd finished writing? Were they still talking to you in your mind? And were you able to, when you typed the end, they left? I, I, know, I never have that thing where characters talk to me or say things to me. Oh, it's only if I'm thinking about the narrative and what I can do with it that I have to think, well, what would this character do? I know there are some writers that work that way. They've, they've always, I will confess, slightly frightened me. You know, when a writer says, uh, oh, my character spoke to me one night, I'm always thinking, really? And I'm backing away very slowly. Yeah. No sudden movements. 
<laughs> but I think it's an artistic expression. But I no, I never have that. Although Detective Farrow was a, was a character that I really enjoyed writing. And Waterstones asked me to write a short story for them for a special edition. So Detective Farrow reappears in that Waterstones special edition, uh-huh. which you can get. Very reasonably priced from the good people at Waterstones. And it's a story about him on a night shift. With a, a, There's a lovely little twist in that story. Uh-huh. Uh, it's called The Lobster Shift. And might we come across him again? Never say never with Farrow. I really enjoyed writing him, and I'll not. I'll, you know, I'm not going to write off and say I'll never write about him again. You know, there's always a possibility. But I had a lot of fun writing him. He was a nice character to, to spend time with. And for those who are wearing black in mourning that there's no Eddie Flynn book at this particular time, can we check he's okay? You haven't locked him in a cupboard somewhere. No. Eddie's totally fine. I'm writing the eighth Eddie Flynn novel now, so Eddie will be back next year in glorious Technicolor. Uh, him and all his rep- retrograde friends, and you'll, you'll, you, don't worry, he's going to be in a lot of trouble next year. <laughs> what makes you write a standalone, though? Is it just the need to do something a bit different and just have a break so you, when you go back to Eddie you feel refreshed and ready? I think that's part of it. I, I try to learn from writers who are better than me. So I look at people like Michael Connolly or Mark Billingham who do write a series but will go and do standalones. Because I think that, that they, they say they learn a lot from doing a standalone and I've learned from doing standalone. The first standalone I wrote called Twisted was just to see could I write a standalone. And then having discovered that I could when I had the, night, the idea for writing this book which wouldn't be an Annie Flynn, I thought, well, this is this is something that I could do and it's it's maybe okay. But it, it will have all the same ingredients as an Annie Flynn novel. Hopefully it'll be fast-paced. There'll be lots of twists and turns and everything I know about writing a suspenseful scene is in this book. So um, you'll hopefully have just as good an experience, um, slightly different experience, but hopefully the same type of thrilling experience that you'll have reading an Annie Flynn when you read this one. I mean, all your books are gems. It must be a nice position to be in, but is that also a responsibility that you've the pressure's there to keep producing the same high level book? Yeah, well, I think I put that kind of pressure on myself, you know, and I feel I feel responsible to readers. If you pick up one of my books, you know, it's absolutely death to me that you'll be able to put it down at any stage, or you'll get bored. I I I I feel a real. Uh, sense of responsibility to the readers which I take very seriously so I'm all as well as writing and reading for pleasure I'm always trying to figure out ways I can be a better writer so I will do the master class uh, online tutorials from writers I will read books on writing I'm always trying to get better and I, I dedicate part of the week to, to doing that so I'm learning more and you know, there's but there's bits of this book that I've I, I learned and picked up from from other different books on writing, like there's a there's a book by Chuck Palahniuk who wrote Fight Club, which is on writing, and I I really enjoyed that, and he talks about using sound in a novel, which I'd never thought of before, mm. um, and that that features in the opening chapter of this book where you hear, the sound of of the train, and it's slowing down, and that almost becomes a heartbeat or a ticking clock to build tension with Amanda, who's about to do something terrible on, on a crowded rail car. So all those little techniques and things I've picked up and I try to put in and, and employ them. Not as well as Chuck Polinick will do, 
But uh, to my own poor ability, I am always trying to be better. No, you can't put yourself down at all. I mean, they're incredible books, but that surprises me because I'd have thought someone of your calibre, you're sort of relaxed into it and yet you're still trying to improve on what you do. Yeah, I, I really want every every book to be better than the last one. The moment I say, like I remember listening to Lynwood Barclay, who I love and he's an incredibly generous author and really funny. He said jokingly to his editor, you know, these books are really hard to write. At what point can I start phoning them in? <laughs> and his editor said, book 15. Uh, <laughs> but, but again, but of course, Linwood never phones it in. You know, he's just incredibly talented. But I, I, I think I've, I have a wee bit of, of, of talent for, for telling a story, which I realized when I was a lawyer. But I, I, that can always be better. That I don't ever want to sit and rely on that. I, I always want to try and learn new things and get better. Oh, that. That's very impressive. I'm interested, though, in what's the most painful part of the process for you? Is it the plotting or is it the editing or is it something? The editing is tough, I have to say, but really enjoyable because it forces me to think um, in a different way. And I'll I'll learn a lot from editing, too. Doing page proofs is tough for me because at that stage, I'll have read this book 20 or 30 times maybe more. And to have to sit down again, I'm, I'm, I really suffer from that blindness where I can't see, and it, 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 so I have to go very slowly going through it. So that that's the most difficult part for me, I think. But all the hard work is done then. It's just tr- literally trying to read it again and spot spelling mistakes or formatting errors. Um, but that's the, that's the bit that, that's most difficult for me. Well, Steve, we've talked a few times on this podcast, so the question I have to ask you now is what fact don't we know about you? What fact about you would surprise your loyal readers oh god i have no idea (laughs) (laughs) there's no secret you've kept hidden there's nothing that you do that's so different to the the steve kavanagh that we know no i'm i'm pretty open and honest about everything i have to say (laughs) um i i I don't know uh all all i can say i suppose i can say is Maybe people didn't know I was such a Hitchcock fan before, and maybe this book uh, might illuminate that. Talked certainly talked about Patricia Highsmith and been inspired by her before, so maybe people didn't know this. I will tell you a little. I don't know how much time we have, but I'll tell you a little thing, a little story. None of people do know or not, and it's about not about me. It's about Alfred Hitchcock. So Hitchcock changed the way people go to the cinema, and he did this with a movie called Psycho. Now, as people know about Psycho and, and what an incredible film it was and how shocking it was for audiences, people, a lot of people know he bought up all of Robert Block's novel, all the copies of his novel that were out in circulation, bought them all and put them in a big warehouse so people could not read Robert Block's book, Psycho, and, and find out the twist. But what he did was he insisted on all cinema chains that would show the movie. No one was allowed into the cinema after the movie, the reel started uh, going. Before that, lots of people in America would buy a ticket to a movie, go in, and it's maybe half an hour on, watch the the end of the movie, stay on to the next reel and watch the start of it, and then leave. That was perfectly common. Hitchcock stopped that. Uh, So the result was lines of people around the block to wait and go in and watch the film. And sometimes the line would be so long, it would be the line would break onto the next block which is where we get the phrase blockbuster from. No, I didn't know that. That's amazing. There you go. So there you go. 
there's a wee thing. Not about me, but it, it's it's interesting. I, I'm fascinated by all that Steve's stuff. Steve's fact of the day. I love it. No, that's absolutely brilliant. Well, we come to the last question, which now normally is the most crucial question on this podcast, but I'm not sure how much it's going to apply to you at the moment, Steve, but I'll ask it. And the question is, okay. what biscuit was powering the writing of Kill For Me, Kill For You? What was your biscuit of choice? I ask it, but you are on a bit of a a health kick at the moment. I am. I wasn't then. So okay. um, <laughs> uh, I used to be powered by Viscount biscuits, um, <laughs> which are a wee bit posh, but they're this thing you get they come individually wrapped in green yeah. and paper, and it's a chocolate with a, like a wee mint thing in it as well. But Viscount biscuits would be always be my biscuit of choice. But I'm not buying them anymore. But uh, yeah, uh, I'm always deeply impressed and delighted to see a Viscount biscuit in anyone's plate. <laughs> well, that's a fantastic, a fantastic biscuit, a fantastic book, and just can't wait to see people reading this book and loving it like I did. Steve Kavanagh, whose latest book is Kill for Me, Kill for You. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me on. Coming up, one more author interview and more book reviews. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Without further ado, let's dive into The Dive. Oh, it's, I'm chronically bad, aren't I? Anyway, yes, The Dive by Sarah Oakes. Let me read you the blurb of this one Escape. To paradise. Scuba diving instructor Cass leads her students out for their first dive off the beautiful coast of Khoi Sang, Thailand's world-famous party island. Khoi Sang? Khoi Sang. Come on, Philippa, get it right. Anyway, it's supposed to be a life-changing experience, but things quickly spiral out of control. By the time she gets back to the shore, one of her students is dead, another badly injured, and she knows that her idyllic life is about to be smashed to pieces on the rocks because someone is making sure that backpackers never leave paradise, one murder at a time. And Cass has a feeling 
she might be next. Oh, see, I said there were good books this week and I wasn't lying. Excellent. Let's go and talk to Sarah now. Well, it is my huge pleasure to welcome to the podcast today, Sarah Oakes, whose wonderful book is called The Dive. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's really exciting to talk to you. And and let's start with the, the first thing that we always do, where we ask you to read the first few sentences of the book. I believe you're going to read from not the prologue, but chapter one. Is that right, Sarah? Yes, I'm going to skip ahead to chapter one a little bit where things get kind of spicy. (laughs) Go for it. All right. The hotel room already smells like death. I know realistically it's too soon for that, that the body isn't anywhere near decomposing. But still, the stench filters into my nostrils, cloying and visceral. A thick, wet substance smears through the cracks in my toes, and time seems to stand still when I see the blood seeping into the carpet fibers. Each droplet holds little pieces of me that will stay long after I'm physically gone. His body looms large in front of me, and then I feel the weight in my hand, the sturdiness of the knife. My eyes flick to it, the lamplight illuminating a rust-colored substance that lines its sharp edge. Blood. My blood. Ooh, that's great. Excellent. Well, yes, let's start with the, the real basic question. Can you give us a bit of a summary of this book? Yeah, so the dive is... Set, first of all, on a fictional Thai island called Koh Sang that's kind of focused on backpackers and scuba diving. And it has the somewhat mysterious group of expats who have made Koh Sang their home. And everything is kind of nice and, and going really well for all of those expats. We also have, you know, a kind of newcomer onto the scene. Her name is Brooke. She's a travel blogger, travel influencer. Everything is going well until a body turns up on one of the scuba dives and it kind of turns everything into chaos and everyone has to scramble to protect those secrets that they're running from in the dark past that they left behind before making Kosei their home. We love tropical islands. We love secrets. Unfortunately, we love bodies <laughs> being discovered. Whatever that about us, yes. Yeah, yes, no, no comment. Well, I, I suppose, oh, yeah, the worrying question is what what inspired you to write this particular book? Yeah, so I went to Thailand in 2015 with a couple of friends and we backpacked through the country. And our last stop was on a tropical island that inspired, you know, the fictional island of Koh Sang. And it was gorgeous. We loved to, we learned to scuba dive there. We just had, you know, such a brilliant time. And then shortly before I left, I found out that there had been a murder of two British backpackers near, right near where I was staying on the beach right down the street. And it just kind of lodged in my mind. And I couldn't really get over that juxtaposition of paradise and this horrific crime that occurred there. So that was kind of, you know, the inspiration, I suppose, uh, for the book so do people worry about going on holiday with you in case you come across anything awful and you're like great this is going to be a super book (laughs) yes and i'm turned into that person that's whenever i travel i'm looking at you know potential new settings for my book so i'll be on you know a romantic getaway with my husband or something and say this is a good place for a murder i think yeah (laughs) it puts a different slant on trip advisor reviews (laughs) exactly and was the location always set in your mind then of this this island? Presumably it was from your holiday experience. Yeah, it was actually really the first thing that I came up with when I was writing the book was the setting. I knew 
I kind of wanted to revisit that place in my mind. It was also, I was writing during the middle of the pandemic and I'm a huge Mm -hmm. traveler and I just, without kind of that aspect of my life, I was kind of looking for a way to kind of fill the hole that travel had left behind. So this was a great way to relive one of my favorite trips and, you know, with some additional dark twists and turns and things. So everything kind of stemmed, I would say, from the setting, the plot, the characters, that all stemmed from the But it must be quite hard to write. It's your first fiction book, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah, it must be quite hard to write that in lockdown. Have you, you know, most people find their second book harder, but I'm interested, has your second book actually been a bit easier because you were writing it in as normal as the world can be these days? You know, I wish that was true. I just my second book has proven to be a lot harder than the first one. So I don't know. I think actually in some way having, you know, being on in lockdown and really not having the choice to do anything else kind of got my imagination and my creativity going a little bit more because, you know, we were all so stifled for kind of new ideas and new experiences. And this was kind of my way to really channel that, I suppose. Mm, it was a way to escape. Right, exactly. Yes. How long did the stories burn in your heart then before you actually started writing it? So I visited, I visited the island in 2015, and I really didn't, I didn't start writing this book until November 2020. I want to say, so it was a few years that I was kind of, you know, just thinking about that island, and I really especially on, you know, my most boring work days, I really thought about just dropping everything and kind of moving back there. It was like a place I completely (laughs) fell head over heels for. But it wasn't so much. I mean, I thought about it all the time. But the idea of writing a fiction novel kind of kind of just really came about during COVID, during the pandemic. I mean, it was always something Mm -hmm. that I thought, you know, I would love to do that. That's an absolute dream. But I don't have the time. You know, I don't have the knowledge or the skill set, you know, and then once COVID came around, I was like, you know, might well give it a try. So yeah, so that was, I guess, you know, the idea of the island was kind of in my mind for a while, but the the story really unfolded as I started to draft it. Now tell us a bit more about some of the main characters that readers will come across as they delve into the dive. Yeah, so the two, there's two primary narrators, the first is Cast. She's a scuba diving instructor. She's an expat. She's one of the permanents, as they call themselves, the group of expats who have made Kosing their home. And she is real. She's you know hiding some dark, dark things that happened in her past. Mm. She came to Kosing very clearly from the get go to to run away from something. She had a very traumatic experience, and she wanted to see to, to use Kosing as a way to start over. And she's really kind of immersed herself in the life on the island. She has a really steady relationship with one of the, the bar owners on the island, who, another expat named Logan. And then at the very beginning of the book, she begins to receive notes on her doorstep that essentially say, you know, we know who you are and what you, where, where you came from, what you're running from. And then the second narrator is Brooke, who I mentioned before. She is the travel influencer who is visiting Posing and, you know, blogging about it and taking pictures about it. And she's also there with a bit of a secretive motivation that she's not necessarily sharing with anyone. So she's she's kind of the outsider 
to the to the permanence when she gets there. So they they both have very kind of different motives and and different backgrounds. Is it a challenge to get the right balance between having secrets and then the reveal of the truth behind those secrets? Yes, it is. That is a huge challenge. I think writing, you know, any type of thriller, it's always you want to leave, you know, like little breadcrumbs, I suppose, throughout to kind of keep the reader tantalized and, and you know, like allude, alluding to the secrets, I suppose, without coming outright and saying them. But at the same time, you don't want to just drag that out way too long. So it's kind of, you know, a fine a fine balance, I suppose, that I got a lot of help with during the editing process. And have any of the characters stayed in your mind and sort of haunted you a little bit after you finished writing the book? Yeah, they have, actually. Brooke is one that has stayed in my mind for, for sure. I feel like I really relate to her. And I don't know. I'm I'm toying with the idea of maybe one day writing a sequel to to this book because I think there there are mm. further stories that could be told after that last page. So maybe one day. I'm not so sure, but yeah. So she's she's certainly stayed with me. I think about her quite a bit. And was I suppose what was the most painful bit for you for the book? Was it the plotting, the before you started writing, or the was it the editing when you'd finished writing it? So I wish I could say that I was, you know, a very organized plotter and I come up with this, you know, wonderful outline and very detailed outline before I start, but I, I don't. I'm very impatient and I kind of just jump into it. And really I don't write linearly. I write kind of the scenes that I'm interested in right off the bat. So usually like the beginning scenes, oh. some in the middle, possibly the end scene. But I think just that I really struggle with that first draft process. It's really difficult for me to kind of just get the whole plot out there. I don't know if it's because of, you know, my refusal to outline or what it is, but I always find that first draft to be the most difficult part. And then once you, I feel like once I have, you know, once I have that structure and I can go back and edit it, I'm okay with that. You know, it's still really difficult, but it's just that first draft that I struggle with the most. And the cover, we need to talk about the cover of this book. I mean, it's just, I I love it. It, You know, you've got some of the words underwater and then you've got this island in the background as well. It's one that I think people have to book a holiday immediately yeah. or not to go and to go and read on it. Were you involved yeah. in that cover? I again, I wish I could say <laughs> I was heavily involved, but basically they showed they showed me kind of a mock up of it, and they they said, you know, we can change this if, if you like. And I think we had very small tweaks to you know font and colors, but overall, I just. I loved it so much. As soon as I saw it, I kind of just kind of captured everything that I was hoping the cover would. So I was really happy with it. That's great. And can you tell us a little bit about what you're writing next? Or is that a secret? (laughs) I can tell you a little bit. It might change at this point (laughs) because I'm, I'm in the editing process, kind of the initial edit. But it is another kind of destination thriller similar to The Dive that features an international, small international cast of characters. But this time it will be set in Australia and primarily in the outback of Australia. Wow, fantastic. Look forward to hearing more about that when when you can tell us more. Well, we come to the final question, Sarah, which is the most important one on this podcast. So please prepare yourself. It's crucial. Prepared. And the question is, 
what biscuit was powering the writing of the dive? What is your biscuit of choice? Oh, I feel like I'm going to have a terrible answer to this because I don't really, I don't really eat biscuits. I suppose I feel yes. like I don't know any UK listeners are just going to turn this podcast yeah. off right this now. This interview ends now. I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Dear, oh dear. <laughs> but I do. This is really bizarre, and I don't know how this kind of came about because I don't ever really eat this like in other aspects of my life. But I've found myself when I write, I always crave like a chewy, like fruity, either candy or gum. Okay. So when I I went through a ton of like tropical flavored gum and also those sour watermelons. I don't know if you have them over <laughs> yeah. there, the sour patch yeah. watermelons. Oh, yes. No, that's that's pretty much what fueled this book. (laughs) Well, I suppose we'll allow that. But when we talk to you about your Outback book, you know, we we expect a biscuit then, sir. So you've got your homework. You know the pressure is on now. (laughs) Yes, adding it to the shopping list as we speak. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's just great to talk to you and hear more about this book and the background and the characters and we just look forward to hearing more so sarah oaks whose book is called the dive thank you so much thank you so much it's been lovely splendid so let's get on to the three other books i want to tell you about and claire keegan's book foster i read this on the aeroplane Oh, I just loved it. I love Claire's books. It's a very short book. You can whip through it. It's a novella, really, but oh, it just packs such a punch. And let me read you the blurb of this one. It is a hot summer in rural Ireland. A child is taken by her father to live with relatives on a farm, not knowing when or if she will be brought home again. In the Kinsella's house, she finds an affection and warmth she has not known and slowly in their care begins to blossom. But there is something unspoken in this new household where everything is so well tended to and the summer must come to an end. Let's do the first sentence of this fabulous book, if I can find it. Here we go. Early on a Sunday, after first mass, my father, instead of taking me home, drives deep into Wexford towards the coast where my mother's people came from. It is a hot day, bright, with patches of shade and greenish sudden light along the road. What did I think about this book? I love it. Honestly, I need to read all her books. It's gentle. It's moving. It's such a story. It's beautiful. It's beautifully written. Exquisite characters. It's short, but it's a 10 out of 10 as far as I'm concerned. I thought it was very, very good. So that's Foster by Claire Keegan. The next book is Ashes of London by Andrew Taylor. And it did strike me on holiday. I would post pictures on social media of which book I was reading. And some of the books that have been published the longest were getting them the most feedback, the most traction on social media. It just shows it doesn't always have to be. It just showed me that it doesn't have to be about all the new books coming out, that I need to go back and look at some of the older books. And I think that's what I, I mean. This book wasn't written that long ago. But it's just, you know, it's not been published this year. But my goodness, what a cracker. The Ashes of London, Andrew Taylor. Here's the blurb. London, 1666. As the great fire consumes everything in its path, the body of a man is found in the ruins of St Paul's Cathedral, stabbed in the neck, thumbs tied behind his back. 
James Marwood, the son of a traitor, is forced to hunt the killer through the city's devastated streets. There he encounters a determined young woman who will stop at nothing to secure her freedom. When a second murder victim washes up in the Fleet Ditch, Marwood is drawn into the political and religious intrigue of Westminster and across the path of a killer with nothing to lose. Oh, I love this book so much. Let me read you the first few sentences if I can find them. Here we go. Chapter one. The noise was the worst, not the crackling of the flames, not the explosions and the clatter of falling buildings, not the shouting and the endless beating of drums and the groans and cries of the crowd. It was the howling of the fire. It roared its rage. It was the voice of the great beast itself. Part of the nave roof fell in. The sound stunned the crowd. Otherwise, I shouldn't have heard the whimpering at my elbow. It came from a boy in a ragged shirt who had just pushed his way through the mass of people. He was swaying on the brink of collapse. I poked his arm. Hey, you. What a book. I mean, my goodness. It's it's basically a 10 out of 10. It's excellent. I mean, if you're fans of the William Shardlake series, it's well written. It's got great characters, great plot. More, please. I need to read more of Andrew Taylor's books. You know me, I'm not always a history fan, but I love this because it had got the detective elements in the thriller. It, it immediately brought me into that period of time. I didn't have to work hard. I didn't struggle to see the world that Andrew had written for me. I just thought it was superb. Excellent. And the next one, I mean, Freya Berry mentioned this book about a sort of light relief from some of the books she read. And I'd got this book on my shelf and I thought, well, let's take it on holiday. Why not? I had the lowest of low hopes for this book. I read this really to read it and say, I knew it wouldn't be for me. And I was wrong. A Court of Thorns and Roses by Sarah J. Mass. Here's the blurb. The skin of a wolf would bring enough gold to feed her sisters for a month. But the life of a magical creature comes at a steep price and she's just killed the wrong wolf. Taken prisoner, she learns that her masked captor is hiding even more than his piercing gaze suggests. But as her feelings for Tamlin begin to burn through every warning she's heard about his kind... A shadow is falling across the land, and if she cannot fight it, she will lose everything. Let's do the first sentences. Chapter one. The forest had become a labyrinth of snow and ice. I'd been monitoring the parameters of the thicket for an hour, and my vantage point in the crook of a tree branch had turned useless. The gusting wind blew thick flurries to sweep away my tracks, but buried along with them any signs of potential quarry. This book, if I hadn't been on holiday, I would have immediately gone to a bookshop. And trust me, where I was on holiday, there were absolutely no bookshops. But um, there were, I, I would have immediately gone to a bookshop and acquired the next in this series. The first couple of paragraphs took me a bit to get into and then whoosh, I was involved in this story. I loved it. It was a romp through. It's a fantasy book, but... Yeah, I never would have thought I would have enjoyed this. I don't know why I bought it, but I am fully committed to this now. Is this a whole new fantasy thing I'm going through? I don't know. I think it's more books that are easy to get into and great reads. The same with Ashes of London. The historical book, sorry, my tummy's rumbling. Your girl's so hungry. 
I am starving. Anyway, yeah, maybe it's just that they are well written and I get into them. So The Ashes of London by Andrew Taylor, that was exactly the same. The Court of Thorns and Roses, that was exactly the same. Those are your books. I have waffled. Let's just do a quick recap. So I've told you about Kill For Me, Kill For You by Steve Kavanagh. And Steve kindly came on to tell us all about that book. Then we had The Dive by Sarah Oakes and Sarah kindly came on. Then also I have reviewed Foster by Claire Keegan, The Ashes of London by Andrew Taylor. Taylor and A Court of Thorns and Roses by Sarah J Maas. Those are your books. I am leaving you for today and I'm going off to try and, well, I'm just going off to eat, guys. I need to eat a substantial quantity of food right now. Stomach is rumbling. It needs to happen. Just look after yourselves and I'll speak to you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.